This episode was produced in collaboration with Bound to Happen Books in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Bound to Happen Books was founded in April of 2021 when Nicole, Rachel, and Lynn recognized a need in our community. A few, actually. A need for a bookstore to provide new releases and popular titles. A need for a store that prioritizes authors, experiences, and stories not represented in our community and a need for a rad space for folks to come together and do more together than each of us could do as individuals. Hi, I'm Courtney. And I'm Ellen. We're the hosts of Of the Earth, a podcast dedicated to digging into the many connections, complexities, and contradictions of Chinese art and culture across time and space. This week on Of the Earth, we talk with Yang Shichu, New York Times bestselling author of The Ghost Bride and the Night Tiger. We dig deep into the origins of this ghostly murder mystery that takes us on a journey from late 19th century Malaya into the plains of the dead and beyond. The book explores the concept of spirit marriage, where the main character, Li Lan, who is from a bankrupt Chinese immigrant family, is offered the proposition of marriage to a wealthy family's only son named Lim Tianqing. The catch? Lim is dead, and if Li Lan accepts, she will spend the rest of her life appeasing his nightmare-inducing spirit. We talked with Chu about modern and ancient funerary customs, her childhood in Malaysia, the afterlife, caring for the dead, food, the recent Netflix series on The Ghost Bride, and Chu's writing process. Let's welcome Yang Shi Chu to Of the Earth. Okay, let's jump right in. Yang Shi, thank you so much for accepting our invitation to join us in this conversation on Of the Earth. We are delighted to have you here. I first read The Night Tiger, and I read that book so quickly. I devoured it. I could not put it down. Once I finished, I immediately went online to find out what other books you have written, and that's how I discovered The Ghost Bride. As someone who studies funerary art, I was so interested in this idea of spirit marriage, and especially in how you create this tension between the world of the living and the world of the dead in this book. I was curious, when it comes to the world of the dead and how the living provide for the dead, Did you refer to knowledge that we have from funerary art? Because I can see a really interesting connection in the types of offerings that are made to the dead in The Ghost Bride with the types of offerings that were made to the dead in the ancient world, especially in a Chinese context. First of all, thank you so much for reading my books. I'm always so I'm always so delighted and grateful that anyone has read them at all. <laughs> you know, it was very interesting to me that you studied funerary art. I mean, you do see it in museums, and it is, I think, one of the best preserved ways we do see art, especially from the ancient world. What we're seeing is 
mostly funerary art, right? Which also makes you wonder, like, what happened to all the other things that were destroyed or just didn't really survive? Uh, recently, I went to see um, an exhibit on Pompeii that came to San Francisco. And that was really interesting because you look at all the frescoes and the everyday objects, which would surely have been destroyed if they hadn't literally been entombed. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, they, Pompeii became Herculaneum. They became a literal giant tomb. And that's the only way we can see their art. Um, but it does make you think that a, a lot, perhaps some of the subjects which are covered wouldn't have necessarily been reflected in everyday life. Yeah. Um, and going back to your question about it, um, I think growing up, you know, history class, of, of course, everyone sees like, okay, two arts of the Tang Dynasty, this is what they're burying. So I'm somewhat familiar with that. But I was for the Ghost Bride in particular, I think a lot of things that I drew on were actually I th things that I saw. Or were, perhaps you would say this would be primary research. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, things that I did with my grandmother when, she, when I was young. Yeah. And, and what always struck me, even as a child, was how the whole, you know, the Chinese practice of burning paper offerings for the dead was so, in some ways, old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of things that are leftovers that completely look like they're from the Qing dynasty. So when you, they will still be producing paper clothes that you can burn and shoes for the dead. And they're all Qing dynasty clothing, right? Of course, there's a completely different um, other sub-segment, which, which is pretty familiar to people in, in Southeast Asia, in which there's very up-to-date stuff to like iPhones, um, MacBooks, min minivans, minivans really big in the world of the dead. <laughs> so, charges like paper charges, all kinds of things, but they all seem to come together in this interesting jumble, you know, of very old things and very new and shiny things. Um, so I, I don't think there's any particular thought other than perhaps whoever's producing this in a, I don't, in a factory somewhere is like, well, we need to have the traditional stuff. You know, and, and by the way, what was hot this year? Louis Vuitton suitcases. You know, I say that too. So uh, there is this kind of glorious mishmash, you know, of things that look like they should come from tombs um, and other things which are very up to date. And people will buy that, of course, for, as you probably know, for both personal reasons, to remember a specific loved one and also as kind of generic offerings to hungry those. And my grandmother, when I was growing up, lived in a very small town um, in Malaysia. Actually, both my grandparents did. Uh, and if you've read The Night Tiger, it's in that area, Perak, which <laughs> is set in. I was like, I'm, why not write about someone that I'm familiar with? So, But when I was a kid, we would go back and my grandmother would do all these things and we children would have to do them all with her. So like Chinese New Year, we had to make all these red paper lanterns mm -hmm. and um, for different festivals, you know, we would also fold paper money for the dead. So it's all very serious stuff. And as a child, it is a bit mind boggling because it's like you're playing. And at the same time, it's all forbidden. Mm -hmm. so, if you understand the sort of, I think, I think the very natural kind of awe uh, restrict for things for the dead. You know, like, and this the Chinese superstition is in don't talk to ghosts because they're negative. So there's this idea that you're making all these really, in some ways, enticing looking offerings, you know, 
um, at the same time, you must not play with them. So if you've seen some of the really big structures that are made to be burned for the Festival of Hungry Ghosts, they look like paper dollhouses. And as a kid, I, and they're very brightly colored, they look like folk art, which is why when I wrote The Ghost Bride, I tried to reflect the colors, you know, very, very bright folk art colors that if anyone's seen Chinese paper cutting, you know, they kind of look like that. And uh, they're so elaborately made. It's like the, the dollhouse, you know, really big dollhouse, six feet wide, you know, sometimes six feet tall with many, many rooms. And it's just so fascinating as a child to look at that and also know that you must not touch it. You know, these are all in some ways taboo mm -hmm. items. So I think there's this interesting kind of juxtaposition about the funerary art, which is made, especially handcrafted or paper art, and is also not to be played with. I also think that's really interesting to think about where you're drawing from in preparation for writing the book. You know, you're drawing from your personal archive, your personal archive of memories. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about either additional kinds of, of personal archives that you are looking to, specifically in relationship to the ghost bride. Well, you know, I, I have to confess that I did not research the book and then write it. I um, I started writing it, and I and I started writing it about dealing with customs that I felt already felt familiar with. When I started, the Ghost Bride was my debut novel, and and I started writing it mostly, um, you know, as a hobby, as an entertainment for myself. And I set it in a town, Malacca, which I was familiar with as a child because my uncle had lived there, and we used to go. And visit all the temple. And Malacca is a very old city. You know, it's been inhabited by many different people, and there are a lot of ruins in the middle of the city, which gives it a vaguely kind of ghostly air. And this town itself gives you this feeling of things from the past. And before, there were also a lot of old houses, uh, which sort of mansions along the waterfront. Um, houses of the wealthy. And now I think many of them are actually gone. The last time I went back to Malacca, it looked, um, I mean, I think it's changed a lot, you know, the roads and the development. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's very different. But when I was a child, it was a town that reminded me of historic times. It's one of the original Straits settlements. And so that would be a good place to put a story about being married to the dead. <laughs> So I read that you came upon a news clipping about a ghost bride, and that also inspired the story. And you were working on research for another book, I think. Is that right? I spent eight years writing a detective novel about an elephant. So it was first person pachyderm. And it's like happily writing on, not really thinking that perhaps nobody will want to read this. And while I was looking at, and I really like animals, so you can probably see that in, in both my novels, they feature lots of animals. Mm -hmm. And I had actually used the National Archives and they do have, um, I think many of the things have been digitized, but back then, a lot of it was a microfiche. So you're nodding your heads. 
Yes. You all clearly know the horrors of microfiche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, younger, I think younger people, uh, my, my kids, for example, have never had to go to the library and look up. I mean, I think with a digitized archive now, I would never have seen that other article. But the problem with the microfiche is like, it'll be like some gazette from 1893 and you're looking, you're just like randomly reading it, you know? So, and when I was looking up, an article about elephants. Uh, there was a one-liner, as you mentioned, which said, the incidence of spirit marriage among the Chinese has declined. And it was so matter of fact, so like, just, and by the way, spirit, you know, I, you know, while we're looking at inflation is blah, 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 and spirit marriage has gone down. So I was really thinking, wait, wait, you know, and that was about, I think it was all it was, you know, it was like a, a small line. And, um, I was really intrigued by that. And I think a lot of good stories, or at least what um, to me is the beginning of a story, is the what if, as in, hey, why is this mentioned in the newspaper? And then when I looked it up, I actually went away and I thought about it for a while. And I thought, spirit marriage, I must be the marriage of the dead, which is something I had also heard about as a child, thanks to my other grandmother who, you know, liked to tell ghost stories. <laughs> old Chinese ghost stories. And so I thought, ah, oh, it's the marriage of the dead. And then I actually put aside my elephant novel. No, no, actually, first, what I tried to do is I tried to write a ghost marriage into my elephant detective novel, which one should, one should never do, you know? It's like a kitchen sink. <laughs> um, and I realized very quickly that this does not fit into this novel. And maybe it's its own story. And that's how you pretty much get the first chapter of the ghost bride. And it really is a what if, you know, what if you were informed one day that you were to embark on a, a marriage to a dead person? Mm -hmm. You know, how does that feel? What happens to the person to whom this is your future and not a throwaway line at the end of a book? So that's where it started from. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the other interesting things sort of along the lines of what you're talking about in drawing from your experiences with your grandparents, you know, your experiences even in the National Archives, you know, with the with the microfilm is, is this idea of place, right? And so I think you know, it's it's interesting for us, right? Uh, Courtney and I, we we spend most of our time thinking about cultural production from mainland China, but this story it's taking place in late 19th century Malaya, and so for us it was really interesting to learn a bit more about this region. And I think for I would I would guess most of our listeners, uh, Malaya is perhaps a concept or you know even a term that they've never heard before. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this historical context in addition to Malaya's uh, historical relationship with China. Yeah, sure. Well, so Malaya is the colonial name for present-day Malaysia, um, where I'm from. And uh, Southeast Asia really has a lot of the Chinese diaspora, so overseas Chinese. And interestingly, you will see a lot of these ghost festivals celebrated, you know, in Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, of course, Hong Kong and Taiwan, mm. and also in Chinatowns all the way across the world. You know, after I wrote The Ghost Bride, 
overseas Chinese from South America uh, contacted me and said, oh, yeah, you know, we used to celebrate this too in, you know, um, in Peru or, or Panama, wherever the overseas Chinese went is where you see. And I would not be surprised um, if they had continued taking the cultural practices to places like Calcutta. I've met overseas Chinese who basically that big diaspora in the 19th century where Chinese went all over the world and they took with them their culture and their beliefs as well. And, you know, going back to what you said about Malaya, Malaya actually has a very long history as a, as in Malacca particularly, as a trading port. Mm. Um, you know, Chinese, there are graves in Malacca which date from the Ming dynasty. So from Zhonghe, the admiral, who he actually sailed all the way around with his giant fleet of warships and wowed the local population. <laughs> so I think they had really big ships, mm-hmm. you know, at that time. And there's still, you can still find fragments of Ming dynasty pottery. And even before that, it's been a trading route, just like I think they were also Chinese traders in the Philippines mm-hmm. and Vietnam as well. And Chinese tend to preserve their culture, you know, it's mostly the men who went out, as you know, and some of them married local wives, which is why we have this, what we call Peranakan or Nyonya, Baba Nyonya culture in Malaysia. But by the end of the 19th century, they were also bringing women out, you know, so they were, these were called the straight Chinese settlements. Mm-hmm. Uh, Singapore has some really well-preserved uh, shop houses from that era. Malaysia still has some too, quite a lot. And it's just very interesting because wherever you go, things are somewhat similar. In fact, I think when Wong Gawai was filming In the Mood for Love, which was a movie set in Hong Kong in the 50s, I read some newspaper article in which he was looking for this particular kind of narrow, you know, shop houses, which no longer existed in Hong Kong because they had, they'd been around in the 50s. And, um, and so he went to, I think he looked, he looked in Ipoh and he also looked, that's Malay, part of Malaysia. And I think he also went to Vietnam to look at the Chinese shop houses there. So you can see that the architectural influence of the overseas Chinese was also repeated you know, around the world. I can see it in, even in Chinatown in, in San Francisco. And in the case of Malaya, or now Malaysia, it also produced some very delicious food. I think there's a lot of food in the book, uh, which brings us to the other topic of linking back to funerary arts, and that is food for the dead. You know, food is, I think, a big concern of both the living and, interestingly, of the dead. You know, there was food offerings was a big deal. You know, the color, the size, the number. As I mentioned, my grandmother was a real stickler for customs. But that's also because I realized later on what she was following was a kind of folk religion. You know, it's a big mashup of not just Buddhism, but Taoism and other random folk religions, Mm -hmm. um, as well as, I think, some sense of um, animism as well. I want to ask you about your use of food in The Ghost Bride. It seems to be an important motif throughout the book in constructing the world of the living and the world of the dead. I thought it was really interesting that there was a contrast between food in the world of the living and food in the spirit world. For example, the main character, Lilan, seems to be infatuated with food. 
She's immediately drawn to the many delicious dishes that are laid out at the Lim Mansion the first time she visits their household. It's almost as if she's more interested in sampling all the dishes than she is the party. Then, later in the book, when Lilan transitions into the world of the spirits, she ends up working in a kitchen with a spirit cook. But although the food in the spirit world is just as visually appealing to Lilan as food in the world of the living, she discovers that it is tasteless. I'm wondering if there's a reason why you drew this contrast with food between the world of the living and the world of the dead. That, that's an interesting point. Um, the tastelessness of the food, that was, that was my invention. <laughs> I don't really know what food is like in the world of the dead, but the whole, you know, the whole emphasis on food, I thought is very true across all cultures. And in fact, before the modern industrial agricultural revolution, everyone was on some sort of subsistence agricultural lifestyle in which you couldn't get fruit out of season. You know, meat was very scarce. And in, I think in every culture around the world, people were buried with food, you know, like whether it was grain or animals were sacrificed, you know, from Viking burials to like South America, Inca funerals, people have always buried other people with food. It's an expression of caring. Mm-hmm. Food is really big in Chinese culture, you know, mm-hmm. like that's the first thing everyone asks you, like, you know, are you... You know, so there's a big emphasis on cooking and eating. Mm-hmm. And when I when I was young, you know, my grandmother would do this whole thing. Like we'd go back for Chinese New Year or different holidays. And then there would always be a lot of food. Even if there wasn't much else, there would be a lot of food, special things that were made. And these were things to be looked forward to. You know, in fact, my mom told me, she said that in the old days that, you know, you'd get mooncakes once a year. So it made them very special. But now you can go into any Chinese bakery and they're randomly selling mooncakes. So my mom's like, why are they doing it? It's not, it's some, in that sense, it's not special. You know, you can get it all the time. And there is a seasonal flow to things, you know, that you can only get this, you can only make this kind of wine at this time of year and so on and so forth. And I think that we do live in a strange world now in which our basic needs are mostly met in the sense that most of us can find food. And in fact, um, in the US, the reverse is a problem in the sense that cheap food is more high calorie now than expensive food, which is from you know organic vegetables. It would have been in the reverse in the past. It was very hard to find calories and people be hungry all the time. So that just struck me as, you know, most of people's lives were spent gathering food or worrying about, are we all going to starve next year? Like what happened to all the chickens? Mm -hmm. So um, food I thought would be very, very important. Also my grand, to my grandmother, food was important as an offering as everything else. And the whole practice of putting aside food. I mean, it's very obvious that it's for an offering for the ancestors or the spirits because she would make all these big trays. So like the whole steamed chicken, you know, with a lettuce leaf and a bunch of lettuces and then bowls of rice, cups of tea, also wine. It was like a, an offering that's either, that, and then after it's been offered, everyone could eat it. So I was like, hmm, that's really interesting. So it's an offering in name only, because <laughs> they're not going to throw it away. Everyone's going to eat it afterwards. So I, that, I did think about that a lot as a child too. And 
the contrast between the food that's given but not really eaten kind of goes along with the whole idea of the paper money that's burned mm -hmm. and the goods that are represented in paper form yeah. and which is i think the common people the common people's offering you know when I was looking at, uh, there was another exhibition of Qin Shi Huang's you know, terracotta warriors that came. Mm -hmm. I went and our whole family went to look at us. And the thing that really struck me was, was that, wow, these are like class A grave goods. You know, like this is mm -hmm. first class. <laughs> you know, so it's like life-size terracotta warriors, uh, which most people just could not have, you know. Um, and then it reminds me of what you see in Egyptian funerary practices in which you'd get these little, a lot, I think, of wooden figures, not all of which um, survived, and a lot of clay figures, and the haniwa in Japan. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there were a lot of other things that have just disappeared, like paper offerings. So it feels like it is a substitute for things that were important in this life. So food, providing for someone, clothing, tools, and what did that look like in the afterlife? I'm not really sure, but if you read Chinese literature, uh, basically uh, these 500, you're probably familiar, these like 500 stories about ghosts and foxes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them dealt with the, the bureaucracy of the afterlife in which hell is basically like being at the DMV forever. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so there is this kind of like, hmm, that doesn't sound incredibly appealing so that when you ask me the question of did the food have taste it did I, I I don't think I consciously set out to make that as a decision but it came out when I was writing that maybe the food that you get isn't quite as satisfying and that's why they have hungry ghosts mm -hmm. which is a whole other you know now opening the door to a whole other side of things well, I mean, it's actually, it's funny that you bring up Hungry Ghosts because when I was reading the book and, you know, when Lilan encounters the first Hungry Ghost, I was really excited because when I first thought of Hungry Ghosts, I was thinking more like the golem-like creature that you would see in Japanese narrative scrolls. But it was interesting that the Hungry Ghosts that Lilan encountered, they were not as grotesque. In some ways, I think you could argue that they were a bit more humanized and they were, you know, a little bit pitiful in a way. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about why you decided to depict the hungry ghosts in the way that you did. I think that, you know, the whole idea of the hungry ghost of a wandering person who has, who died somewhere without a name or anyone to remember them is very sad, actually. And it is a great fear of most Chinese because family in those days was everything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so Chinese who died overseas would have their bones packed up in jars and sent back to their villages so they could be buried amongst relatives. So, I, you know, it is both pitiful and a source of fear, I think, to die alone and so far away. And when you think about it, especially in the 19th century of overseas Chinese diaspora, people would be leaving and you may never come back again. You know, you may never see your village again. Uh, because people also died of diseases and and other things. So it was, I think it was very frightening. And at the same time, as you said, they are people. 
you know, I think that's the saddest part about it is that they are all people who wither and fade away. Mm-hmm. I, I've actually, ever since when I was a child, I found Chinese ghost stories really scary. It's <laughs> particularly frightening, especially if you watch like, you know, a lot of the horror movies produced in Hong Kong in like the 60s and 70s and 80s. They're really scary. So, and there's just so much mixed up into it. I think both the, the you know, like I said, the pitifulness, the fear and the longing that's all wrapped up into that. Very, I think strong emotions. And as I mentioned, I didn't actually plan this book up. I didn't, I, I didn't make an outline for either novel. I just wrote as the, the story seemed to go. But it did make me feel that, you know, the idea of a revenant is really literally a remnant. It is a remnant of something, a strong emotion of humanity. And you see that with the depiction of ghosts all over the world, especially, you know, Victorian ghost stories. And when I set out to write The Ghost Bride, what had also inspired me as a child, um, I'd read a lot of Gothic, Victorian Gothic novels. So when I, when I actually wrote The Ghost Bride, I did think of it, I conceived of it as a Gothic novel starring this hapless Chinese girl, you know, as in the tradition of Gothic novels, gets married into a great house where there are unspeakable secrets. And I've thought, of course, in true Chinese style, these unspeakable secrets should include uh, like dead bridegrooms and, you know, <laughs> the afterlife, which is really a very big component. And so when you, you're talking about the hungry girls, going back to what I said, I think it is the same thing that you see, but it comes out in a different form. And that is the revenant, the remnant of a person, of a very strong emotion, of a desire. And if you look at, I think, Buddhism and Taoism, they both ask you to give up this world, you know, to move on. And I, in some ways, you could say the fact that there is this very strong attachment um, makes it much, much harder. I mean, I also think that it's really interesting, you know, as you're saying that over time, the hungry ghost, it withers away, it fades away, you know, which again is, it seems like um, such a, a, a fear to be forgotten or, you know, when a family member passes away, this, this fear that, that they will be forgotten. And so I think that that's really beautifully articulated within your representation of the hungry ghosts in the novel. That's very interesting. Yeah, the fear of being lost, you know, and I think before the advent of photography, the the terrible thing is to forget the face of your beloved Mm -hmm. because there was no way to preserve. I mean, people have always been drawing like that. And that's, I think, with the advent of photography, a whole profession of portrait artists was, (laughs) you know, disappeared. But the desire to capture the likeness of something, of someone you know, and not to forget them was really, really important. And I think the same goes for all the other things that go with it. Um, in the novel, I think Madame Lim is hanging on to her son because he, I don't think there would have been a photograph of him, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, w- when you think about the whole Chinese afterlife, I, I see it really as an expression of caring. Mm-hmm. It is also a way to comfort the bereaved. Mm-hmm. 
in a very strange way. In the sense that people might have regrets, like I did not get to see so and so before they passed, you know. Or and in those days, even harder, like you never went back to your village, and maybe three years later you get a letter saying that so and so has passed, and you're filled with regrets. And so it is a way. The idea of the spirit world being with you is a way to comfort the bereaved because you feel like you can still offer something, and it's also a way to acknowledge your relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that there's also,、um, you know, this really wonderful cultural component, sort of like as you were saying earlier, a way to express care. And so I think that offering the dead food, or you know, offering、uh, someone who's passed a bowl of rice, is this really beautiful way to express care, and at the same time, a way to ensure that this. Individual or this this spirit, whatever we want to call them,、um, they don't disappear into the ether.、Mm-hmm. And it's a way of maintaining your relationship with them. The living continue to maintain a relationship. I think you still see this in Japan and a lot of altars in which you have a photograph of someone who's passed, and then you can talk to the person and also offer food. You know, like I had some really, I got a really nice. Tea the other day, and you know, here you go. <laughs> so, and I think it's a universal kind of expression that、um, not to want to forget someone or to feel that you continue your relationship.、Mm-hmm. And I contrast this to, you know, the similar time frame, late nineteenth century Victoriana and its emphasis on memento mori, right? But which. Came out in a rather different way, in which it's all cloaked in the mourning, the mourning, or which you see in the grief of Queen Victoria and her inability to move on from her husband、um, Albert's death. Her response to me as a layperson was to freeze it in that moment, in that time. But apparently, she kept rooms where they were, and she continued to wear mourning, to wear black、mm. for the rest of her life, as though she had been. Stuck in that time, and so for of course for Chinese, you know,、uh, amongst in Confucianism, li you know, ritual is that you have to mourn people who are close to you for prescribed number of years and wear certain kinds of clothing. You're not allowed to wear certain colors until I forgot how many years have passed. Right, <laughs> different for different relationships, but the you know the stasis of Queen Victoria, I think, contrasts. Very interestingly, with the ongoing Chinese relationship in which life goes on, people get married. You know, your son who has passed can have a bride、mm-hmm. and adopt children. You know, so it's as though it's a different reaction to a bereavement in which, rather than hold on to stasis, things move on. They'll be like, "Do you remember these mooncakes? I know you like them. We're enjoying them together." Here's some good wine, and here's a great poem. I'm going to burn it for you. So I think it's similar and yet different. I wonder if that also has something to do with you know thinking of life and death in this kind of cyclical way. It's it's not necessarily one life 
and then, you know, an afterlife. But the afterlife is is so much more complex. You know, you can be in the land of the dead, but then, you know, after a while, your your term in the land of the dead is over, and then you have to go to to judgment, right? You have to go to the courts, and then, you know, there's reincarnation. So, you know, there's there's so much more. Yeah, and I, I well, I have to confess that when I was really thinking about the Chinese concept of the afterlife, that I had to, you know, I had to sort of make up the place of the dead because, as I said, it, these are a number of different concepts. You know, there's Buddhism, the idea of reincarnation, and yet, so if everyone gets reincarnated, why do you need grave goods? I always wondered about this. So then I had to make up this in-between place, like, which seems, because like I said, they're not all part of the same thing. It's kind of a mishmash of folk religions, animism, and, you know, Buddhism. And so I thought the only thing that made sense to me was if there was this kind of place where you could enjoy your grave goods and then go on to reincarnation. That's the only thing that made sense to me. I did want to put in a part four, which I had planned out. It should have been a, a trial called the courts of hell, you know. <laughs> Well, maybe I will still write that book one day, but I thought in the style of the classic Chinese ghost story, which is also a detective novel and usually some kind of protest against bureaucracy in the afterlife, they're really, and in corrupt judges, there really should be the 10 courts of hell in which, um, you know, they even called witnesses in these Chinese literary stories and they'd, they'd be like witnesses to various crimes. Um, it's just like a very, as you said, a very vivid world of the afterlife that that continues on in very unexpected directions you know you're coming from this very rich place where you know there again like you're saying there are a lot of things coming together you know Taoism and Buddhism you know it makes sense that you know that you would be drawing from all of these different kinds of cultural connections you know to dream up this world of both the living and the dead Actually, I have some questions too. Can I ask you questions? <laughs> so I was so intrigued by the fact that you're studying like funerary arts and art representation. And I would love to hear about your take on ancient funerary arts versus if there's anything similar or whether the only thing that is left is this kind of qingming, you know, the grave goods for the dead. How, how, is that, how has that worked out? Yeah, so I mainly work on material from South China, uh, Hubei province and Hunan province from Chu culture of the Warring States period. So roughly fourth century BCE. Oh, so it's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and, and even going back further, I think to the Neolithic period, you start to see a story being told through the construction of spaces for the dead and then the types of offerings that are being made. So, you know, when you move into the Bronze Age, you start to see, of course, the tombs that are excavated are tombs of the elite. So we really have a, I would say it's a, it's a narrow picture of what the ancient Chinese thought of the afterlife, because we're only getting to see what the elite thought the afterlife might look like. And so in ancient times, like you were saying earlier, 
ancient Chinese tombs are a lot like Egyptian tombs, right? They want to fill the tombs with all sorts of goods, whether those are things that were made specifically for burial, which I would say is similar to the paper cuttings, more modern paper cuttings, and then objects that the person might've owned in their lifetime. So you'll get these two categories of objects, the sort of utilitarian things that the person owned and cherished and loved in their lifetime. And then the minqi, the spirit objects that might be things that are there to help protect and aid the spirit in the afterlife. So you know, I keep bringing up Lady Dies tomb because it's it's been in my head recently because I've had to do a lot of writing on that one. <laughs> but Lady Dai, you know, her Ming Chi included her coffins, which had paintings on them of animals. You'll you'll love this. So animals, uh, dragons, tigers that represent the directions. So animals of the cardinal directions to protect her as her spirit wanders you know, north, south, east, west. She had stylized cloud forms to represent her destination, the world of the immortals. So I, I, you know, when I think about ancient funerary practice versus what I learned in The Ghost Bride, which I'm not as familiar with more modern day practices, you know, I've seen news articles about like the burning of paper vaccines recently in Southeast Asia. And I, you know, I, I see stuff like that. And to me, it's, it's all part of a continuous story that began in the fifth millennium BCE in, you know, the, the Chinese view of the afterlife and, and caring for the dead, right? Caring for your ancestors. Yeah, it, that, that is so interesting. And, and I think, you know, like, as you said, the paper vaccines, it's kind of like whatever whatever you think might be useful and helpful in this life is given to the next life as well, which is a continuation, you know. And as Ellen, as you, as you mentioned earlier, it is once again not to be forgotten, mm-hmm. you know, as though the, the spirit continues on. The person is not diminished or, you know, the person changes but continues on this story. And we don't really know what the afterlife is like, uh, but at the very least, I think being able to provide for others is a comfort to the bereaved as well, you know? Yeah, well, in the in the ancient world, I think, you know, it wasn't just about providing for the dead, although that, that was a huge part of it, but especially with true culture, there was a great fear of ghosts mm-hmm. and that if you did not provide for the dead, you may be setting yourself up to be haunted <laughs> for the rest of your life. Yeah, I think that's that's very true even now. You know, so that, that is the reverse side. Mm-hmm. The reverse side of the hungry ghosts, besides having compassion for them, is the terror that they will come and haunt you, Mm -hmm. you know, or those, or bring, you know, as Chinese believe that ghosts are negative energy. And so it is also an attempt to placate them. So speaking of ghosts and hauntings, in The Ghost Bride, there are a few instances where 
Lilan has nightmares about Lim Tianqing. And there was one dream in particular that really struck me as an art historian. And it's the one where she encounters Lim Tianqing in a grove of blossoming peach trees. And he greets her holding out a branch of peach blossoms. I immediately thought of Qing Dynasty paintings of the peach blossom spring, which is this utopian world untouched by the chaos of war in the outside world. Were you thinking of this utopian story of the peach blossom spring when you created this dream sequence? I thought it was an interesting intersection of utopian imagery with a grotesque nightmare. Well, you know, I, I, as I said, so I, I don't actually plan anything. It, things kind of show up when I'm writing, you know. So, and sometimes they work out, and sometimes they don't. But um, I, I actually don't know what's going to happen in a scene until I, I, I write it. But what I was thinking was, it is a scene in the sense of when I was a child in in my grandmother's small town in Perak. Once in a while, there will be Chinese opera. In now, I think it's very rare. And then when my mother was young, she said it was an even bigger deal because that was the entertainment. Like the opera performers would come and they would set up and they would basically give a performance. And someone else told me that what they used to do was the first night they would give a performance with no audience. It was for the dead. So I was like, really? Goodness. So um, I don't think all troops did that, but some of them did. But the scenery that I was thinking of, the peach trees, the allegorical symbols, like really obvious symbols, because um, Ming Tianqing is clearly like a very obvious person. It's like, you should marry me because I'm so well off. Mm -hmm. um, so it did feel to be very staged because he has, first he has a proposal, right? And he's also setting her up to say, you should, you know, I'm so great, you should marry into my vast mansion. Um, so I had been thinking more of the theatricality of that. And then the really obvious symbols of that would be like um, the peach trees, which also show up in, you know, the, the Monkey King, which I, uh, Journey to the West, that I read as a child. I mean, there were like chapters and chapters about the Monkey King working in the peach tree orchards and, and not doing any work. So it's like, it seems like a really big thing. But what, what struck me when I was writing the scene was that it should be somehow apparent to her that this was somewhat staged. Mm -hmm. So everything looks unreal. You know, the, the fruit doesn't look real. It looks like paper mache fruit. Yeah. Um, everything's a little bit off. And I, I would also attribute that to the Twilight Zone. So when I was a kid... You know, we watched, I think, in Malaysia, they broadcast the original 1950s black and white. Um, oh, I love those. Those are so creepy, you know. And, uh, you know, my kids have seen them on YouTube as well. They're like, mommy, those are really scary. Oh. And part of it, I think, is because it's the black and white. And also, I think that the actors had heavy yeah. makeup on. And some of the props were very staged. Yeah. And yet it was completely creepy. So in your third novel, will you explore similar themes of the world of the living, the world of the dead, hauntings? Are you allowed to give any details? It's set in China, actually. It is set in uh, Dongbei, mm -hmm. so northeast China. And 
It's a detective novel about women who turn into foxes. Ooh, I'm very intrigued. So I know we're running out of time. So for a last question, can we ask you about the Netflix adaptation? Yeah, but you know, actually, I I was so thrilled that Netflix wanted to adapt it. I was very, very excited. I was like, oh, okay, yes, yes, they can have it. Um, but they actually did their own adaptation. They said that they would take the characters. And so the story is not the same as the book. It's different. Um, but it's a different adventure, you know. I watched the Netflix adaptation as well. And I there, it was very different than the book. And I was particularly struck by the casting of Guangtian as <laughs> Lin Tianqing. Like, this beautiful man. I mean, I got a lot of comments from readers too. They were like, you know, in the novel, he's this, this really overbearing guy. And why is he so hot in the series? Yeah. I, like, I don't know, but you know, that was super. That's, that's Hollywood. Did you have any uh, involvement with the script or did you just, you know, give them characters and Netflix ran with it? Yeah. Netflix said that they would do it. And, you know, they, uh, they they actually they they did the story the casting and I was very thrilled by the lead actors you know I thought I got to meet them I was a little starstruck I was like ooh they're so charming all of them are so charming so I I yeah so um I did get to go visit the set because they filmed in uh in they filmed on location in parts of Malaysia and also in a big studio in in Johor. And that was just very, very cool. Like they had recreated so many amazing things and it was just very cool. It was a really neat day. To, to see things that you imagined in your mind and to see them, you know, to enter the world in a literal way. Yes. And, and you know, I think that's the wonderful thing about stories. To me, a novel is like a dream. It is a dream that you enter into. And it's always slightly different for different people as well. It was just very amazing to see how they had built parts of the the Lynn Mansion. I think they also went and filmed on location at an old house. And that was just very, very cool. They said the, the story goes out into the world and it takes on different people's imaginations and perhaps gains a life of its own. It's very cool. We really enjoyed entering your dream world and I can't wait to enter another dream world constructed by Yang Xichu. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It was very fun. Thank you to Bound to Happen Books for collaborating with us on this episode with special guest Yang Xiu Chu. You can support Bound to Happen Books at bookshop.org. And as always, thank you all for listening to Of the Earth. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Buzzsprout. We are Of the Earth Podcast. 